you guys have a paper Bible, like a printed Bible, actually, like here with you? Okay, I want you guys to do something for me as we get started. Go look at your Bible and go to like Revelation 22 and figure out the page. You got to do a little bit of math here, okay? Figure out your page number for the very end of the New Testament, Revelation 22. And then keep your finger there and go up to Matthew 1, the beginning of your New Testament, and figure out that page number. This is like a tax form. And then subtract the latter from the former, okay? I want you to figure out how many pages is the New Testament in your copy of the Bible, right? So it's going to be like 1,236 minus, you know, something, 954, something like that, okay? Uh, Matthew 1. Yeah, Revelation 22, page number of Revelation 22 minus the page number of Matthew chapter 1, okay? Yeah, beginning. Basically, how long is the New Testament in your Bible is what we're doing. How many pages? Now, some of you that have, you know, like an NIV study Bible have a lot of footnotes. You're going to get a longer answer. Some of you that are reading a Bible that's just straight Bible, it's going to be a little shorter. Anybody do the, anybody quick at math? 509, 670. Man, those study Bibles are janking it up. Yep. 243. So you got a straight Bible. 235. So you said 235. Okay, so here's what, yep, what do you got, Jennifer? Okay, so here's what's going on. Those of you that are reading a, a Bible that's just actual Bible, it's going to be about 250 pages, right? 230, 240, 250, somewhere like that. And then if you have a study Bible, like all bets are off. It's going to be five or 600 because there's so much double material, okay? So if you, here's what I want you to consider. We'll go with the straight Bibles that are just easy, like without study notes. It's about, it's usually about 250 pages for the New Testament, okay? So... If you read your New Testament 10 pages a day, how long would that take you? About 25 days. Is that surprising? That doesn't sound that hard, does it? You could read the entire New Testament in less than a month if you're just reading 10 pages a day. It's not that burdensome. But let's say you're like, well, actually, it is that burdensome. Okay, no sweat. We can be friends. Let's half it. Okay, so now you're not going to read 10 pages a day. You're just going to read five pages, less than, less than, how long is that going to take you? About 50 days, right? So less than, less than two months, okay? What, we, what I want to encourage you guys is I think the single, probably, I mean, I might be wrong, but I think the single most important thing that you can do for your spiritual growth in Christ is to develop the habit that every day, every day, you're just going to read a chunk of Bible, and if you decided to do, if you just read five pages a day, you could read through the entire New Testament in 50 days. That's not that hard. And then, watch this. On day 51, you could do it again. Right? You could read through the entire New Testament. What would that be like? Six times a year. Right? Six times. You could just lay it down, lay it down, lay it down. Now, if you wanted to do the same thing with your whole Bible, which also I recommend... If you, did the, if you did the numbers, your Bible, is pr- like a, a Bible that's not a study Bible, is probably about 1,200 pages long. And so the same thing. If you read 10 pages a day, you can read through the entire Bible in four months. If you want to say, well, that's, that's a little bit fast for me. It's okay, sweet. Do it in half that time. Right? Or do it in twice, you know, half the reading twice the time. That'll take you eight months, and you can read the entire Bible. And then you can bang out four New Testaments when you're done. Right? I mean, it's just not that hard. It just really isn't. And if you were to choose to do that, if you were to say, you know, I'm just going to make it a, make a commitment that every day I'm going to read my Bible for 15 minutes or 20 minutes or five pages or 10 pages, whatever your unit of metric is, um, 
layer by layer by layer, the Word of God is going to get hidden in your heart. And God promised, He says this, that, that He has given us everything you need for life and godliness through your knowledge of Him who called you by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He's given us a very great, He gave us His very great and precious promises so that through these we could escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires, that we could participate in the divine nature. It is the treasure trove. And the biggest thing that I want to impart to you, really the secret weapon behind every class that we ever have in here, every sermon I ever teach, is a hope that I will incite in you a love or a deeper love for this book, that you would become convinced that it's filled with treasure and that you would believe that you can find it. And if we can accomplish those things, if that can happen, or to the extent that it has already happened, or to the extent that it can be, it can be realized or manifest in a deeper level, is the degree to which your life is going to grow in Christ. Because all this good stuff, everything you need to become a wise and good parent, it's hidden in his scriptures, right? Everything that you need to survive life in a world as broken as this one is, is contained in the scriptures. But it's not doing you any good if it's sitting there. We want you to know. We want you to become fluent in it, be familiar with it, and love it, and treasure it, and then be a conduit of it to others. Right? That's why we do. That's what the whole thing is about: is that this treasure will become deeply rooted in your own heart. And the best way to do it is not by coming to this class or sitting in there or listening to somebody's podcast. Those things are all helpful. In, my life has been deeply enriched by teachers. God gives us teachers. But I think the single most important strategy you can employ is the daily habit of just reading five minutes, 10 pages, 15, 20, you know, whatever it is. Just lay it down, lay it down, lay it down. And so what we're going to do in here for the next, I don't know, maybe a year or something, is I want to give you guys an overview of every book in the New Testament one at a time. Okay? So a couple weeks ago, three, four weeks ago, in the sanctuary, I preached on Titus. Who was here when I did it? Did anybody... It's always embarrassing. Like nobody's like, I have no memory of this, but maybe I was there. And so, but some of you might remember that I taught on Titus. Anybody remember the two secrets of Titus, or one of the two secrets? This is the scariest question I ever asked people. Do you remember anything I said, Titus? Anything strike you? It's dark. Okay, Suzanne, rescue my soul. He's not talking about Yes. Right. So over and over and over again in Titus. Paul calls Christ Savior, and he never calls him Lord. That's weird. 257 times Paul uses the word Lord in all of his letters, at least a half a dozen, even the shortest little thing of Philemon. But he never calls him Lord in Titus. That's number one. What's the second clue to Titus that helps you un unpack the book? Do good, do good, do good. Do what is good, do what is good, do what is good. Okay, then we juxtapose these two things. He's trying to help people to live good lives and his focus is on Christ as Savior rather than Lord because it is not the threat of punishment that motivates us to obedient lives. It's the reality of grace, right? If you understand those two secrets, then Titus will give up its secrets to you, okay? So what we did there for Titus, I want to do for every book in the New Testament one at a time. And we're going to start with Luke, and that's today. And the reason we're going to start with Luke is this. I, I would suggest to you this, that when you read, if you read, if you take me up on my, my challenge to just make it a point, read through the New Testament in 25 days or read it in 50 days, whatever, I don't particularly care, but if you go through it, here's what I suggest you do for the order. And you, can, you can jot this down if you want. You could go to the table of contents of your Bible. That's a great little tool that we often neglect. I would consider something like this, okay? Here's my, here's the Tim Henderson through the New Testament in 50 days challenge, Okay. I'll give it to you at high level and then I'll be a little more specific. 
I recommend you read a gospel. And in particular, I recommend you read, I'll just give it to you in order. I recommend you start with a gospel, and in particular, Luke. Read Luke. If you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's going to start to feel redundant, and your eyes are going to get glassy. Don't do that, okay? So pick one gospel. I recommend Luke. It'll give you a history of the life of Christ, a biography of Jesus through a beautiful lens, which we're going to look at a little more deeply today. But we're going to start our series here in Luke. Then after Luke, I would read Acts. Because Acts, you know what Acts is? It's the sequel, baby. It's Luke part two. And if you read Luke and then you read Acts, you're going to be like, oh, I get it. It's the same dude to the same dude. And, it's the same, and there's all this. We'll, we'll, get to, we'll get to Acts when we get there. But I would read Luke, then I would read Acts, and then I would read Romans. Because Romans is the most important thing ever written in the history of the world from this day to the end, forward and backward, okay? If you read Luke, then Acts, then Romans, then you're going to have this magnificent foundation. The story of Christ, his life, insightful for what our lives are. And then the first 30 years of the history of the church that is so uh, insightful for what our lives are supposed to look like. And then Romans, which kind of lays out the gospel in the most thorough sense. We will talk about Luke today, and then we'll, we'll cover Acts, we'll cover Romans. Once you've done that, then my recommendation is you circle back, pick any other gospel that you like. You might read Matthew, you might read John, I don't care, read Mark, whatever you want to do. Read a gospel, and then go pick any letters that you like. Just read three, four, five, six of Paul's letters, Peter's letters, John's letters. Just be, be flexible. If you, want, if you want to make yourself feel ambitious, read like Second John. It'll take you one minute, okay? It's super short, all right? And while you're doing this, literally in your paper, and I recommend this, I only ever, ever, ever use this, this digital Bible, right? Because it's amazing. I'll talk about this another time. But when you're doing a through the Bible thing, a paper Bible is superior. I would really recommend you just read like a book, like an actual book that you can smell, like a real book, okay? And in the table of contents, just make a check mark. Check, I got Luke done. I got Acts done. I've got Romans done. And now I choose randomly Mark. And then I'm going to read, I'm curious about Ephesians. I'm going to read 3 John. And I'm going to read, I don't know, James. I don't care what you do. Just pick whatever you want. Read, okay. And then a handful of letters. And then another gospel. And then a handful of letters. Okay. And just work your way back and forth until you get to this. And I would recommend you save Hebrews and Revelation for the end. Because they are the strangest. They are the most difficult. And they, if, you, if you're new to it. I, rem- I remember reading Hebrews, and it was like, holy cow, like, what is happening? I had no idea what I was reading, okay? And so save that. Those are a little bit, little bit, little bit later. So here's, the, here's, the, here's, the, here's what I suggest you do. Five to ten pages a day, you get it done in a month or two. You start with Luke, and then you go to Acts, and then you go to Romans, and then it's a free-for-all. Pick a gospel, a few letters, a gospel, a few letters, a gospel, a few letters, but save Hebrews and Revelation for the end. sequence in here. Making sense? Okay. Now, we are about to follow that same sequence in here. Of course, I'll pick a random, I'll pick a gospel, I'll pick the letters. You can follow mine, but it's kind of going to be just whatever strikes my fancy. I don't think it's terribly important in the order that we do that. We are going to start with Luke and then Acts and then Romans, though, for sure. And as we do, you could, you could do this. If you want to, well, we'll see how the timing of it works out. You could, because we're, we're going to talk about Luke today, and if you decide to start this today or start this on Monday, you could read Luke. Anybody know how many chapters Luke is? Anybody have a sense? No, no, no. It's 24. 24 chapters in Luke. So if you read Luke, if you read like four, three to four chapters a day, then you'll be done by the time we get back. And I haven't, here, I, we're going to have to make a decision, and we might experiment a little bit in this group. I might teach every book twice 
or I might not. Okay, so we'll see. I don't, I'm going to have to figure this out. We're going to cover Luke today, and then if you choose to, you can read Luke this week, and then we might look at Luke again from a second lens, having now that you've got it freshly in your mind, and do like a Q&A time on it. Maybe. I don't know if we'll do that. And then Acts, and then you read Acts, and then we'll talk about Acts. We, we may, we'll, we'll probably experiment as the year goes on, because some books are long, some books are short. Um, we might do, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm committed to not turning this into like a 12-week series on Luke, okay? At most, we'll do a couple weeks on, on any given book. But the Gospels are long, Romans is long, First Corinthians are long, Revelation, Hebrews are long. So we might give those a couple weeks. But my goal on the front end is to give you, before we, before we jump into it, while we do Luke, is to give you, here's, what you, here's the secret, here's the key to Luke. And then I hope that if you choose to read it, you'll be like, oh, there it is, I see it. It makes sense now. Or, and maybe you've read Luke eight times, and that's great. But it's probably the case that we'll discover something together in this room that will change the way you read it. You'll be like, oh, 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 I never noticed that before. Right? You, you know this phenomenon. Like if I ever watch a movie endlessly, any movie I ever watch, I'm like, I'm a plot guy. I'm a like everything that's just like overt and concrete and normal. And then Kelly's like, well, did you notice this? And I'm like... No, I never see any of the any of the intuitive, artful. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then I look at it, see, it's like, oh, now I see it. Okay, what I hope to try to do here for you guys is to catalyze that. That you're like, oh, I see what he's doing. I've read that before, but I never noticed that it was significant. Okay, that's the plan. Good enough. All right, now, guys, if you have notes, pass them out. They're strategically located throughout the room. People with notes, we're going to pass these out, and this is going to be our guide to the Gospel of Luke which if you choose to read it, is filled with treasure, and you can find it. Now, while these things are passing out, let me tell you a little bit about this document that you have. This is something that Gina and I made last week or two weeks ago, um, and it took forever, okay? It took me forever to do the research. It took me forever to decide what content that I want to include in this thing, and then sweet Gina, like, hammered out the formatting for me, right? And I want to make 27 of these. I want to make one of these for every book of the New Testament. I think it would be an incredibly magnificent, wonderful library edition. But I'm not making any promises, okay? Because this thing took forever to do. I hope to do it, and I hope to keep doing it. It's one of the things that makes me want to, like, do, a, do two weeks on any given book because it buys me a little more time. So we'll see. If you look at it, it... it, it it unapologetically reflects me in as much as it's a, just a butt ton of words, right? A far better, like a more creative person would like, it would not just be so many words, I know. But I think in words, I do everything in language, and I am not remotely artistic. So uh, I apologize that it's so word heavy. Um, it's not the kind of thing that you would like hang on your wall. But... It contains all kinds of information that I think will be helpful to you. And so I will use it here. It's the sort of thing that could be like a, uh, uh, like a full information. Okay? So here's what I want you to know. Have you heard? Yeah, Bill? Uh, okay, we're going to get to all this. Okay, it's all coming. Okay? Um, are they, did we have enough? Did they make it around for everybody? everybody? Anybody need a document? Okay. So... When we talk about the Gospels, some, a couple of things that are high level first. When we talk about these Gospels, Gospel is simply a biography of Jesus. It's a, it's a story about his life. But like every biography, every story ever told like this, the author has a point. It's not just 
just raw data. He's organizing his material and he's framing his material. He's saying things in a particular way that'll be meaningful to you, right? He has a, he has a point. He has an agenda. He has a purpose. And when we look at the Gospels, there's, a, there's, two, there's a couple of things that'd be useful as we start with this study of Luke. So we divide the Gospels into two sections. There's one and there's three. What, do you guys know what that is? What are the three Gospels and what's the one Gospel? And what, what am I talking about here? Chris? John. Okay, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the set, and then John is the single. That's correct. What do we call the set? Synoptics. And what does that mean? Sin is same. Optic is C, right? So they look the same. You could, you could say that they resemble each other. You might have that sense. Or you might say that they see from the same vantage point. And indeed, there's a huge amount of overlap in material. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, you'd be like, oh, there's like all kinds of like, that's in here, and that's in here, and that's in here. And then when you read John, it's completely different, overwhelmingly different content. Okay? Um, so Luke is one of the synoptic gospels, in as much as it has a lot, of, a lot in similar with Matthew and Mark. So far, so good? We also say that each of the gospels looks at Christ from a different perspective, a different vantage point. Um, are you familiar with this? That we would say that John portrays Christ through a lens of that he is God. The divinity of Christ is seen very clearly in John's gospel. And what's the opposite of, of God? Man. And which gospel portrays Christ as man? Do you know? This one, Luke. Okay, so Luke's primary vantage point is to see the humanity of Christ. We're going to come back to that in a second. Uh, Mark, what is, what is Mark's kind of motif through which we see Christ? Servant. Do you know this? It's servant, very good. And the opposite of servant is? Do you know this? Okay, so we saw the low to the highest of the high, king. And that is Matthew. Okay, so we say that Matthew portrays Christ as king, Luke as man, John as God, Mark as servant. And that's lovely but you might say, says who? Like, what, on what basis do you make that kind of a claim? How do we do this, right? That's the sort of thing that I want you to see. I want you to be like, when, when somebody says, like, you, some of you parroted back, yeah, Luke portrays Christ as human. Okay, well, prove it. This is the proof, right? We're going we're gonna to look at that. And we're not making these things. This is true. This is actually real, and it's, it's present in the text. But what we want to try to do is, is to squint at the text, to put a couple of filters in front of and be like, oh, I see what you're doing there. That's the kind of stuff that we're going to do. Okay? Now, what's peculiar about Luke's gospel? Do you guys know? It's odd in a particular way um, that differs from Matthew and Mark and John. Is it, is it written by a God? Written by a doctor. Yes, this is true. Who wasn't there. Who said that? That's it. Al, he wasn't there. This is strange. How do you know he wasn't there? Do you know? Okay. Al is correct. Lily, what did you say? It's also from the perspective of a lot of people. It's like there's no way he was there. Yeah. Take, in your Bible, go to, go to Luke. Look at, look, look at Luke chapter 1. So Matthew was there. Mark is actually, you know what's weird about Mark's gospel? Do you know? It's Peter's gospel. Very good. Okay. Peter was there. And John, of course, was there. Luke was not there. Take a look. Let's see. I can't get my normal Bible to do stuff. Okay. If you go to Luke 1, he admits that he wasn't there. He's a researcher. Listen to this. Luke 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and surrogated everything from the beginning. It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, 
most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What Luke is telling us right there, he's like, I wasn't there, but I've talked to the people. I have carefully researched. I've gone around, I've traveled around, you know, Israel. I've traveled around the Middle East, and I have investigated everything from the beginning, directly. I've interviewed Mary. Like, when you read uh, the, the birth account, the reason we tend to like Luke's gospel account of the birth, we tend to, you know, Charlie Brown takes place in the gospel of Luke, by the way. Um, and it's because Luke has interviewed Mary, and he's getting the most intimate front row seat to this tender story, right? So Luke is a physician, right? He's a researcher, and he sits down to create an orderly account of the whole thing, right? We're going to see more of this when we get to Acts, which will either be next week or the week after. When we look at Acts, you're going to see a very similar beginning, um, and we'll, we'll unpack that there. But Luke becomes, he's, becomes a believer, and he travels around, he knows the Christians, and he researches all these things. And then he sits down to say, hey, let's just clean this thing up. Let's make a tight, orderly account of the things that have happened. And that's what we're going to find in the Gospel of Luke. But when he does, his orderly account is not just the story of the life of Christ, but it's the story of the life of Christ through, through a very particular lens. Okay? Now the thing that maybe is most broadly known about Luke is that it, it is the Gospel of Christ, the human being. Okay? Now, some of you may have already begun to read this thing, and that's okay if you have. But I'm curious, before you walked in this room this morning, what would you have said to, to uh, validate the claim that Luke sees Christ as human being? That he focuses on his, not his he's not de denying his divinity, by the way. Nobody thinks that Mark doesn't agree that Jesus is king or John doesn't agree that Jesus is man, okay? But that his particular focus is on the humanity of Christ. Any, has anything surfaced in your reading to support that claim? Christ as man in the Gospel of Luke. Yeah, Suzanne? Yeah, he's talking about like, childhood, like things that we can relate to as Very good, okay. So Suzanne is saying, so he has a focus on things like his birth, like his childhood. In fact, take a look at your document here and look at this, where it says his nativity, his childhood. This stuff is all particularly, he's a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. His birth is a very strong focus in Luke, right? There's a baby. Um, the story of Jesus, um, you know, kind of ditching out his parents and going back to the thing in Luke 2. After the feast was over while his parents were returning home, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem. And this strange language, right, for us, the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. And then this, we almost, we struggle a little bit theologically with the humanity of Christ. It says that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And you're like, how is any of that possible? Was he not, and we struggle, right? Was he not an omnipotent, omniscient, three-month-old? Did he grow? And like, These are strange things to reckon, okay? This is Luke. Luke is saying, no, 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 he was, we, we have a tendency because of our understanding of his deity to discount his humanity. And Luke's saying, no, 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 don't do it. He was human just like you, okay? Birth, nativity. What else? Kathy. But that scripture that says he learned obedience by the things he suffered. Yes. That's a man. Yes, right? All, all, these are all more language, so, so, which is a great point because our, it's not as if our full understanding of the humanity of Christ is only contained to Luke, right? It actually permeates the scriptures, but it's in there, okay? Kelly? In chapter 4, when he goes back to Nazareth, his hometown, and he goes into the temple and reads from the scroll of Isaiah. Yep. 
There, all the people are amazed and ask, "Is this Joseph's son?" Yes. And he says, "This fulfills me. I am this. They're like ready to kill him because you can't claim to be God. You're just a man." Yeah. So you see, so what Kelly's saying is that when, in 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 Luke four, when Jesus goes in, into the temple and he reads the scroll from Isaiah and says, "Today this is fulfilled in your presence," everybody's offended because scandalized be God when he's clearly human being, right? They're scandalized by this normal, potentially normal person who is making these outrageous claims for himself, okay? So we get stuff at his birth, birth nativity, his, the human growing process. What else? Things that make us think that Luke has a peculiar focus on his humanity, DFP? Um, at the other end, uh, during his crucifixion, Luke's account is probably more biologically graphic and accurate. That's right. Um, than any others. You know, it, it was a human body that was being ripped up. And, you know, it goes to pretty great pains to make that clear. Right. It's, 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 in, it's in Luke alone that we'll get a couple of things. So we get, you, we get this tie-in. This is interesting because Luke, the physician, has a peculiar interest in the human body, right? He gets this thing. And so it is only in Luke's gospel that we see what, what happens in the garden only in Luke. Sweat blood. He sweats blood, okay? This is, a, this is a medical phenomena in which someone under extraordinary duress, their, their blood vessels will dilate, and they can literally like bleed out through their skin. Luke as a physician, and Luke as a person who's interested in the, the human being's terrible suffering relates these things, right? Excellent. Humanity of Christ in Luke. Other things that you knew walking in the room today? Darren? Okay, okay, now this is interesting. So Luke contains a genealogy, but so does Matthew. And so what is it about Luke's genealogy that is distinct from Matthew's genealogy? Mary. Okay, okay, so this is interesting. We'll come, we'll come to the through Mary thing in a second, yes. But there's something, there's something peculiar about the two when you compare them. John? Matthew. Matthew's Correct. And so with Matthew, he kind of has it organized in a sets of 14. And in particular, Matthew shows that Christ is the descendant of kings, the Israel kings. He's the descendant of David. And that genealogy stops where? How far back does Matthew trace it? Do you know, have you ever noticed this? Matthew takes him back to Abraham. Why would Matthew be interested in tracing him through the kings to Abraham? Because he is the Jewish king. Matthew is written to a Jewish audience, and so he's interested in establishing that Jesus is Jewish, and that he is, Matthew is very interested in showing Christ as the messianic king, and so he shows that he is in the bloodline descent of the kings, in particular of David, okay? Luke, however, is trying to trace him, is showing that Jesus is human, a human being. So you want to guess where his genealogy goes? Goes all the way to Adam. So that's, a, so this is all part of, the, these are the clues. All these things start to stack up. He's like, yeah, 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 he's a descendant here, blah, 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 through the Israel, you know, the nation of Israel. But Luke is saying, he's one of us. He's one of us. He's one of, like all you Gentiles, that you're not related to Abraham, right? But you're a human being. Jesus is a human being. And Luke is very interested in pointing that out, okay? Now, through Mary, generally speaking, the understanding here is that Luke is actually tracing his human line through Mary. So if you go to this, he, he, Luke gives us a clue here in this weird little thing when he does the genealogy. He also goes a little bit later with his genealogy. It's, it's, you can find it back in chapter 3. Look at what he says in Luke 3, 23. And you can see the stutter step, the skip here. 
In Luke 3, 23, it says, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old and he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Dun, and on down the road. When he says that little line, so it was thought, he's like, well, okay, let's be honest. He did not have Joseph's eyes. We understand this, right? Okay. And so, so the general understanding is that what, what Luke is giving us is his, yes, he is thought to be the son of Joseph, but in fact, his, his blood descent traces through Mary, which is why we have a different line from Luke's gospel than we do from Matthew's gospel. Okay? All right. Now, anything else about, because there's more, but why do we think that Jesus is a human being? Or why, does Luke, why do we think that Luke was particularly interested in persuading you of this? Anybody else before you look at your sheets? Scott? Well, That's right. Uh, it, he, he wasn't, his judgment wasn't, I don't want to say clouded, but it, it wasn't something that was that analytical. Yeah, so Luke. Uh, and I, I don't know, but was Luke Jewish? Um, what do we know of if Luke, I don't know if we know if Luke was Jewish. Maybe a doctor or things like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I know later on in life he lived in Rome. Okay, so here's what we want to be careful. We, want to, we, we don't want to say that Luke, I'm not at all saying that Luke would deny the deity of Christ, but rather he is trying to make a particular theological point about his humanity. Right, right. Because of his education and everything else, the way he was up. That's right. That, and that's exactly right, Scott, because, what, and I'll come to you in a second, Fetz. The, uh, when we see these guys come from a particular purpose, um, God chose Paul to write Romans. And before he wrote Romans, he brought him through these experiences that would make him well-suited to write Romans, right? And before John wrote 1 John, he spent three years hanging out with Jesus and learning about the magnificence of his love. And he was therefore well-equipped to write 1 John from his direct experience. And if you'd asked Paul to write 1 John, if you asked John to write Romans, they wouldn't have been suitable for the task, right? They were ready for it. And Luke had been made, made ready by God through his life experiences to produce this particularly meticulous, historically anchored narrative that we would show, that we would know the certainty of the things that we've been taught, right? There's a, there's a brilliance to this design. Fetz? Yeah, the, the concern that he has Jesus have for um, the outsider, the, the uh, people that uh, were kind of pushed aside, yeah. shows the humanity of, of his kind of open up the book. Don't do it yet. Um, we're going to see some of the evidence of this. So let me show you. We'll, we'll run through this. How am I doing? Ah. Okay. So Jesus is a human being. Nativity child, we've hit that. His descent from Adam via Mary, we've hit that. Here's a peculiar thing in Luke's gospel. Jesus is depicted over and over and over again as dependent on the Spirit. Okay. If you just look, just see this. The Holy Spirit descends on him. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, did this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, um, uh, Luke 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you what you should say. The Holy Spirit is a major focus in, G in Luke's gospel of Christ. And he shows this. This is so interesting. We think, we all think that sure Jesus did this, that, or the other thing. He's God. You know, he's cheating, right? But Luke endlessly depicts him as a human being just like you, dependent on the Spirit of God who lives in you. That's one of Luke's primary purposes is to show the dependence of Christ on the Spirit of God. And this, by the way, it might not surprise you that Luke is going to write Acts 
Because who is the star of the book of Acts? It is the Holy Spirit, right? And so the sequel, he's setting up the sequel to show just as Jesus was dependent upon the Spirit because he was a human being. So also you human beings who are dependent on the Spirit can do great things. It is a major motif of Luke. And it sets up what the human beings are going to do in Acts. What should be what we human beings will do, okay? Not only is it dependent on the Spirit, this is a strange thing. You wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily notice this on a casual reading. But Luke has a strange way to focus on Jesus' dependence on other people. Okay, look, just look at this. This is so interesting. Jesus is constantly having dinner at somebody else's house. Like, all the time. And I don't want to say that Jesus is a mooch because he is the Lord of heaven and earth. But he is reality of others. And in fact, I, I point this thing out to all, every year to my fellows. Do I have this under this section? Yeah. I point this out to the fellows every year. Kelly and I raise support for our work with uh, Blue Ridge Fellows, meaning there's a team of people that support us financially every month. We've raised our support when we were with Campus Crusade. So we've been, we've been raising support for, all, for 30 years, right? Depending on the kind generosity of, of a team of partners. We train the fellows to how to raise support to come and be a fellow. And everybody, generally speaking, is terrified to raise support, right? Nobody wants to do this. Nobody wants to depend on others. Nobody wants to ask for money. It's just everybody gets creeped out by it. They don't want to do it. Ground zero for me when I try to teach our fellows, and even as I was taught as a crew staff member, you're allowed to do this, is this astonishing fact. Did you know that Jesus Christ raised support? <laughs> Did you know that? Actually, did. go to Luke 8. I have it written down here. You can look it up in your, in your Bible. Or you can just see it right here in the second column. Listen to this. This is, in, this is insane. After this, Jesus traveled about. This is the third one down on that dependence to others. Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Some women, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others, were helping to support them out of their own means. Isn't that crazy? So think about this. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. He owns the universe. He has the ability to drop an unbaited hook into the water and to pull out a fish with a coin in its mouth. He can take a fish and multiply it. He can make bread out of bread. And yet, he made himself dependent on a group of women that were writing checks every month to support his ministry. Isn't that extraordinary? He's a human being. And he, he, did not, he did not tap into his divine powers, but he lived as a dependent person and thereby gave a model for us that it's okay for us to be dependent on others. It is okay for us to have a meal at somebody else's home. Whenever in our pride and our arrogance we're like, no, 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 I'm a self-made man, I'll do it myself. It's madness. We are dependent people. And Jesus lived dependently. And Luke is really strong about pointing that out. Okay? So you see, his nativity, his descent, his dispense on the spirit, dependence on others. We also see this particular focus. This is, you get more of this in Luke. You might, you might say John. I, I'll give John second place on this. But Jesus' dependence on prayer is a major motif. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He went to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying. And once while Jesus was praying in private and as he was praying. And one day Jesus was praying and he withdrew to a stone's throne beyond them, knelt down and prayed. And in anguish he prayed. This is a particular focus. Because of course he's praying. Why is he praying? Because he's a human being. 
dependent on his father and he needs to commune with him. Luke wants us to see in Christ the one to whom we can relate. I'm needy. I don't know what to do. I'm dependent on the needs of others. I live on the generosity and hospitality of others. I'm allowed to do all those things because my Lord was all of those things. And it frees us from the arrogance and the presumption that I don't need nothing. Jesus himself lived as a dependent person. Making sense? Okay, Christ is human. Now, Fetzer, you said something insightful. Open the book. I want you to see this. This is kind of where Andy was going. Not only, not only in Luke's gospel is Jesus a human being, but he is unbelievably inclusive. Christianity is a funny thing, you guys, because we are simultaneously unbelievably exclusive and perfectly inclusive. The gospel is for everyone. It's for you. It's for those that are near. It's for those that are far off. It is for the Jews. It is for the Gentiles. It is for the righteous, i.e. the self-righteous. And it is for the unrighteous, i.e. the rest of us. It's for everybody. And Luke is really, really strong about showing the absolute inclusivity of Christ. There's only one way to be saved. It is only through him. He is exclusive. He is the only bridge across the chasm. But everybody can cross the bridge. Just take a look at the groups. If you kind of let your eye kind of scan around this. In Luke's gospel, there's a particular focus on the outcasts. Beginning, of course. What is the first hint of Jesus' love of outcasts in the gospel of Luke? It's already right there. What is it? His birth. His birth. Why? Why? What's the connection there, Helen? He was an outcast. Like, so... So we have this, there's always this tendency to like, we're going to associate, you know, whatever, the rich, the powerful, the privileged, the whatever. I mean, I don't know. Jesus identifies right out of the gate, there's no room in the inn. Probably, I mean, I don't know, maybe some of you may have had a birth as lowly as his, possibly. But it's a pretty, it's a pretty lowly, birth, lowly birth. And right out of the gate, he shows up and it's like, yeah, there's no pretense around him, right? Have you walked into a room where you feel like underdressed? You know this phenomenon of like, oh, I, you know, whatever. Nobody ever felt that way around Jesus. People wanted to be with him. He was one of the outcasts. The people that he draws to himself are tax collectors. Everybody hated those guys. They complained about him because he welcomed sinners. Even, the, look at this here, the other criminal rebuked him. And don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence. And then Jesus says to him, remember me, or he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you be with me in paradise. His whole life, from his birth in a lowly grave, I mean, in a lowly manger, to his death in a, in, a, in a criminal's cross, his whole orientation to the world is, come to me, come to me. And he casts no one aside. He loves the losers, which is good news. Not only that, women, look, kind of go, go on this side, look on the left side, the widows, and on the right side, the women. Huge focus throughout Luke's gospel. writers focuses on Christ's love of women, is a welcoming of women, and not just women, but women on the outcast women, prostitutes, you know, people that are off, off on the side, widows that are alone, that have no one on whom they can depend. This is a good example, though, that it's not unique. This is a focus of Luke's, but of course, John 8 is a woman on the outcast, on the out edges of society. Luke 4 is the Samaritan woman. So Luke is not contradicting the others, but he just gives more weight than anyone else to Jesus' love of widows and women. John, did you want to say something? You just, you just stretching? Okay, great. Not only the widows and the women, but the poor, the Gentiles. If you just kind of let your eye follow through this, you'll see 
Jesus loves poor people. He tells stories that show up in, in Luke's gospel that show up nowhere else of his love for everyone. Look at, look at the Gentile column. Theophilus is a Gentile. This thing that Luke was written to a Gentile. Jesus came for all the people. Luke 2, it's in the Gentiles that he's a light of revolution, revelation. All of mankind will see his salvation in Luke 3. In, it's in Luke's gospel that Jesus talks about the widow in Zarephath who would be a Gentile and Naaman the Syrian who is a Gentile. There's a centurion who doesn't only receive the love of Christ, but he's commended. A Roman centurion is like the occupying military force. Just imagine, right? We've got, I don't know, who's going to overtake the United States? Whatever country comes in and overtakes the U.S., and their soldiers are here, and Jesus is speaking well of them. It's extraordinary gracious, okay? Leave the center thing. We're not going to look at that. And just go to the back thing. Just a couple of things to notice when you read through. If you choose to read through Luke this week, you're going to see a couple of weird things. In, do you know this? In Matthew, what's the opening tag for the vast majority of parables? Do you know what Matthew's parables are about? He says the same thing over and over and over again. Kingdom. Who said it? Yep. The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. And of course he does. Because in Matthew, Jesus is portrayed as king. But in Luke, Jesus, who's a human being, all of his parables are about a man. Over and over and over again. I just put a sample here. We started, Gene and I were trying to make this thing fit. So Jesus tells a story. He's like a man building a house. And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem. And an evil spirit came out of a man. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree. They're very normal. They're just about people. They're just about some dude. Because he was some dude. Right? So when you read, if you do, if you go through and you read Luke's parables, notice it's not the Matthew language of the kingdom of God is like, you're not going to find that in Luke. Instead, you're going to see human beings. And in particular, look at that little box here. All of these parables are unique. You get the parable of the Good Samaritan? That's Luke. Of course it's Luke. Because he loves the Gentiles. And Samaritans are Gentiles. Um, the story here, the stuff that you love, Luke 15, you probably know Luke 15. Parable of the Lost Coin, the Prodigal Son. Um, that's all unique to Luke's gospel. And this is, I think, a surprising fact. Look at these key terms. The word Savior does not appear in Matthew or Mark or even in John. It's only in Luke. Salvation, only in Luke. Redemption, only in Luke. So there are certain things that you're going to get. If you choose to read through Luke, Just what I would invite you to do is to maybe read through this and then read Luke's gospel. And when you do, you're going to start to notice, oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. Tim was not lying. And he wasn't. It's all true. And hopefully it'll help certain things pop and you'll begin to recognize what are the things that is unique about Luke's biography of this extraordinary man. Okay? Catherine. Is that where the road to Emmaus? Yeah, the road to Emmaus is Luke 24. That's only in Luke. This whole, this amazing story. Where, do you guys know the road to Emmaus? Jesus is walking down the road with a couple of B-team disciples. They're not members of the 12. And the two are just all, mum, you know, they're all mopey and sad because Jesus is dead. And they don't know. They don't realize that they're with Jesus. And, and Jesus is just talking to them. Hey, how you doing? And they're like, oh, we're sad. They're like, oh, why are you sad? Well, what are you talking about? You don't know? And they have this bizarre conversation. And in it, it's so beautiful because Jesus is present but hidden. Right? He's right there with them. And they don't know it. And he uses that moment while he is present but hidden to explain to him, explain to them that he has been present but hidden all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Like they, every time you've read this book, it was always talking about me. 
Well, actually, it was always talking about Jesus, and you didn't know it. You couldn't see him. And then the lights come on, and they realize, oh, my gosh. It happened right now. Like, he was right here with us. He was present with me. But he was hidden, and we couldn't see. All right? Amazing. Okay. Here's the last thing I want you to see. Really quick. Go to the center. This is, this is really, really important, okay? Luke 9.51. I didn't give myself enough time for this, so i got to rush this. In Luke 9.51, it is the most important turning point in Luke's gospel. So when you get through it, when you get to 9.51, circle it, highlight it, underline it, okay? What happens in Luke 9.51 is that Jesus sets his face like flint for Jerusalem, okay? Everything up to this, he's kind of been teaching. Things have been happening that mattered before Luke 9.51. But in Luke 9.51... Luke portrays Christ in the language of the servants of the uh, the servant of Isaiah. And Isaiah, uh, I'm giving you too much detail. And as, uh, chapters 42 to 53 of Isaiah is this section about the Messiah, and he's known as the servant. And something that the servant does in Isaiah is he resolutely sets his face like flint. He's determined to go accomplish the redemption that God has sent him to do. Luke 9:51 pictures Christ as that servant who decides, I am marching to Jerusalem and nothing will deter me. Now, what awaits him in Jerusalem, of course, is a cross. He's going to suffer and die terribly to accomplish the redemption of his people, and he knows that this is what's happening. So in Luke 9.51, he's like, he takes a deep breath, and he's like, nothing will take me off my game. And from that point on, you'll see I included not all, but many of the instances. From that point on, uh, Luke constantly reminds us we're on our way to Jerusalem. But the people didn't welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Those 18 who died in the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than those living in Jerusalem? Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. I must keep going today and tomorrow for no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Now on his way to Jerusalem. We're going up to Jerusalem. He was near Jerusalem. He was going to, okay. Luke is real. It's like, okay, Luke, we get it. You're on your way to Jerusalem, okay. Well, here's what's extraordinary. Absolutely bonkers. We know, if you've read the story, you know that what waits in Jerusalem is his deep agony. He's going to suffer and die. He's going to take upon himself the wrath of God against all of humankind's collective wickedness. He's going to suffer and die. And when he finally gets to Jerusalem, the place of his agony, where is his focus? Look at it. Look at this. Who is this? Luke 19, 41 to 42. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. Jesus knows that in 70 AD, in 40 years, Jerusalem is going to get wiped out. They're going, to be, they're going to suffer terrible things. And when he, gets to the, when he gets to the city, to the place that he will be crucified in a week, he is more captivated by Jerusalem's suffering 40 years hence than his own agony that's a week away. Isn't that insane? He loves you. He cares about people. Like any normal person would be focused on their own agony, but he is focused on theirs even though it's 40 years in the future. This is who we worship. This is the one who loves you and gave himself for you. And what Luke has given us here is a portrait, a very, very sympathetic portrait that you might be able to relate to him. 
the fact that he was made like you, that he is a brother of yours, he's not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister. He's not ashamed to identify with the poor. He's not ashamed to identify with the outcast. He's not ashamed to identify with the losers, to be dependent and needy. He is all of those things so that we will not stay far off, but will come crowding into him and find in him everything we need, all of it within himself. Okay? That's Luke in a nutshell. You got 24 chapters. You can read it in a week. And, uh, and then we'll either talk about it more next week. I got to decide how we're going to do that. I'm not sure. But we're going to go Luke, Acts, Romans in that order. If you want to get cracking, have at it. Full of treasure. You can find it. Thank you for coming. <laughs>